There's a story of two ancient desert monks who committed themselves to their monastery with a vow of permanence. Though they had pledged to stay at the monastery indefinitely, they longed to travel and explore the world that was now unobtainable to them. Therefore, they came up with a plan. Every six months, they would sit and elaborately plot a trip to some exotic part of the world. Every detail was considered, and and by the time they finished, they had before them the directives for how they would fulfill their wanted desire and grand idea. At this, they would then return to their normal duties at the monastery and proceeded to never step foot outside of their home. Six months later, they would do it again, continuing a cycle that enjoyed the excitement of potential without ever making it a reality. Their plan was always staying ever inaccessibly out of reach. My name is Tyler Kleberger, and this podcast is called Becoming Human, where I try to explore who we are and why we are here so that we can better live in the world. You can find all sorts of different content at my website, tytherkleberger.com. And if you find any of this valuable, there is a way to support this stuff. It's called coffee, which is kind of like Patreon, but a bit simpler. You can just send a one-time donation or you can still do the monthly thing. Any of it's appreciated. Seriously, I I don't want to do the whole marketing, you know, give a free product, lead to a paywall, e-course or PDF file that I made up just to make money. I just want to make this stuff. Like, I, I genuinely just want to make it, share it for free. But if you decide, you know, that it's worth your financial support, hey, that's awesome. Anyways, you can do that at ko-fi.com slash becoming human, which is ko-fi.com slash becoming human. Or you can just get on with listening to the rest of this episode where we are going to explore what is going on with those desert monks. There's a strange propensity with human beings where we have lots of ideas that never make it to lived reality. Why do so many good thoughts never leave our heads and manifest in our hands? Or as the famous phrase articulates, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That's what we're going to look at. The difference between ideation and execution. And what is in the way that leads to an overflowing file cabinet in our minds of good ideas that never left the monastery. So let's get into it. Let's get smarter and let's live better. Let's become more human. I want you to begin by considering an idea you had that never happened. It's currently January, which in the United States involves a very common practice of speculating on how the next year can be different. From about Thanksgiving into Christmas time and New Year's, there is this unordinary season where our schedules and rhythms are all disrupted, right? The the ordinary activities and movements slow down a bit, and we have this transition that the calendar climaxes with the holiday season. And there is almost this built-in human propensity to want to start fresh. Often this is referred to as New Year's resolutions, right? Which I honestly don't know if people do the whole resolution list thing anymore, but the consideration still seems to be present. 
And last episode, we looked at this with with health and diet and exercise and how that's like top of mind right now, the, the most tactile way people anticipate changing. But it isn't just resolutions, right? This transitional period of, of the year creates this tendency with, with businesses and, and organizations and, and even families. You know, the fourth quarter ends, we're reflecting on those numbers and we see you know, the new year as an opportunity to make some shifts or recalibrate the machine and see how else we can move forward or with your family, you know, who either spent more time together or felt a very noticeable absence. Well, you see the opportunity to confront issues or make adjustments or generally try to set up a way of life that can improve on what was normal for the past 12 months. This time of year beckons us toward progress. It's, it's a convenient opportunity to change. We, we dream of a new year being different from the last one. And usually the ideas come flooding into our minds. Yet, we humans seem just as likely to never realize those monumental life-altering feats. Now, I happen to be someone who is obsessively organized. Everything has a right place, even even ideas. So I have like dedicated notebooks and files, all classified by category or process or field of inquiry. Like seriously, my, my spouse sometimes gets stressed out with how detail-oriented I am, even with like the most mundane things. Y- you know how back in the day, schools used to give students a planner every year? Do, do, do they still do that? Well, I was the kid who took advantage of each to-do list section, each calendar section, and fully utilized like the blank notes pages, and I still do it. I have Excel docs and software that literally hold every idea I've ever had. I'll be walking in the store or or taking a shower and will immediately have to stop, write something down, and then go through the process of like properly filing that information in its necessary spot. It's ridiculous. You know, some people die with lots of stuff that their children or legal heir has to figure out what to do with. I can imagine they're just often like, we'll just get a dumpster. My kids are going to have flash drives of all this stuff and are probably just going to decide to like hit delete. All while thinking, what was wrong with him? Anyway, here's the weird thing about having all of these ideas omnisciently before me. Often... I will be searching for something and will come across a list or idea or concept that I had written down months or even years before. And I realized that I never actually did anything with it. Like I found grocery store lists for food prep ideas that I never actually bought and made. It's weird, I know, but what happens is that I'm constantly reminded of my failure to move an idea from my head to my hands. Like I'm going to die with gigabytes full of good ideas that will forever remain only good ideas and yet I keep doing it even this year I have all of these thoughts on new avenues to explore in my lifestyle and my family I have all these inclinations with my job and my friend groups and my community and yes I I take the extra step of writing them down and mapping them out but I'm the desert monks with every detail considered and drawn and organized and they typically stand to stay before me Veiled in the obscurity of ideation. Except a few. You know, there are always a few things that kind of smolder through the neglect or or blossom 
you know, like a randomly scattered seed, gardening actually might be a good metaphor here. We have all these intentions, right? Seeds that we plant, we, we put them in the ground, but in order for these seeds to sprout and grow and bear the intended fruit, the planting of a seed has to come with additional actions. So, so sometimes, yes, a random seed will sprout up. You know, you're walking along the garden one day and you see something that you forgot you even planted. And I've had that happen where the idea captivated my attention, it disappeared from my consciousness and then showed back up later in time, like sometimes years later. But how do we keep from depending on, you know, good fortune or just happenstance? How do we actually take these ideas and make them happen? We, we need to be able to avoid the snare of good intentions. But how do we keep our exciting possibilities from occupying the dustbin of history? You know, writing out an idea, that's the easy part. Executing the idea is a struggle. And our ideas just stay forever in the future. So what do we need to do to keep our good ideas, our hope for innovation, and transformative plans from failing? we need to engage the delicate balance between ideation and execution. And there are two primary barriers in play. One, our natural resistance to change. And two, the complicated process of memory. See, memory requires information to be encoded and encoded in a particular way. And changing norms requires overcoming entrenched habits and, and psychological, even biological desires for fam familiarity. What we need is an intentional process that can catalyze action. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these obstacles and then I want to end by exploring what needs to happen instead, because just thinking something into existence, it's not going to get the job done. So let's start with memory. Yes, I am claiming that our failure to move from ideation to execution deals with how human memory works. It's a bit of a convoluted detour to get there, but once you make the connection, it should make sense. So I'll introduce you to a concept that you probably already know is true, but maybe haven't considered in this way before. It's called the myth of transformative information. Basically, information is not transformative. Example given, cigarette warning labels. And this is how I was introduced to this idea. Someone had a pack of cigarettes and they read the following. Smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy. Smoking can lead to your death. The person then pointed out that this information is given right on the box of every pack of cigarettes. If someone is considering smoking, they have every piece of information they need to affirm that decision. When you go and you buy a pack, everything you need to know is right there. The idea is that you read the label and you go, oh, I don't want that. And then you don't smoke. By the way, in 2021, the tobacco industry was almost a $1 billion industry. Hence the myth of transformative information. Now, I want to be fair. We should give the Surgeon General's credit. At least they tried. But how many people have stopped smoking because they read a warning label? They put the information there. They, they can wash their hands of someone's decision now. They said what needed to be said, the message, the rhetoric. They have all the content someone needs to know about what will happen if they partake in the substance. Yet, 
I've never met someone who stopped smoking because they read the label and it changed their mind. And this all deals with a complicated process of someone's perspective, of which we took about 11 episodes to cover like throughout 2021. So it is complicated. But whether you are a parent or a teacher or an advertiser or just someone who has ever had a conversation with another human being, you've probably realized that just by giving someone information, it doesn't mean that the information is going to make a difference. Because information is not transformative. I don't know if this was just something that happened during my childhood, but have you ever seen someone write out goals on their mirror? Maybe maybe that's a weird thing. I don't know. There was this whole movement in the early 2000s about you know, speaking something into existence, your goals, the things you want to change, New Year's resolutions, you know, you needed to take that thought and make it visible in your consciousness, you know, speak it, think it, let it captivate your mind and it will come, you know, like the mental field of dreams. And it's, and it's kind of like ancient prayer rituals, you know, to the gods, you know, may this offering of words and incense rise to the manifestation of a new car in my driveway. That, that's what it felt like anyway. What was captivating about this concept is that it did make something top of mind. In a lot of ways, this, you know, secret process is similar to how a lot of religious folks approach prayer. You know, you speak these intentions as a means of encoding your desires or intentions into your memory. But remember, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And a a whole diatribe here could ensue about the nature of prayer. I'll spare you that. The short version that also pertains to our conversation is that prayer is a means to a particular end and is one step in a process of altering a perspective so that, and the emphasis on so that, it can assist in the change of behavior in a particular action or ethic. But if all you ever did was speak the thing or think about the thing, it doesn't lead to the thing happening. It's just one part of the process. Nor does it mean that you will continue to think about the thing as circumstances and life and rhythms and schedules and activities continue to captivate that consciousness. Like, I remember my parents, bless their souls, and they're probably listening to this. I love you, mom and dad. This is not an insult. It's just an example. We would have to write the things we wanted on the mirror in our bathroom. So every time we got ready for the day or prepared for bed, you know, we'd see them. That's the idea. And there were moments in our family's history where you could walk into one of our bathrooms and just like see the list of things, you know, confiscating your view. But it would just be a moment because as soon as someone took a shower, it slowly eroded those words and then we'd have to write them again, which we didn't. You know, the experiment didn't last long. And this is why the problem of ideation and execution deals with memory. Because the cognitive recognition of something is just one step in the process. Now, it's an important step, and we'll get to that shortly, but you know, by thinking of something or writing something down, it activates some memory, and that thing's more real than it was before. But one of the central principles of communication is that rhetoric does not change people. Experience does. The psychological emphasis here is that we only have what we know, and we only know what we have seen. 
This is called phenomenology, and we, we covered this in detail during those 11 episodes on perspective. It's the idea that a person's consciousness is primarily comprised of their direct experience of the world. In order for something to be embedded in your consciousness, you know, long-term memory, it has to be, you know, directly, tangibly, meaningfully experienced. And rhetoric can help with this. You know, reading the warning label on a box of cigarettes can help promote a change, but it needs other substantiated processes in order for it to lead to anything. You can read the warning labels and profess a desire to quit smoking all you want. But the ideated information won't automatically be executed simply because you did. Something else has to accompany the good idea. You need the dirt. You need the water. You need the sun. You need the nutrients. You still need the idea, the seed. You still need to write the thing on the mirror or make a list or have Excel docs full of information. But that is just putting the seed in the ground. In order for the seed to grow, there's got to be something else. Or if we want to frame this in terms of psychological and behavioral change, okay, there's a process called the trans-theoretical stages of change. Again, man, I'm, I'm just plugging all sorts of old content today. We explored the process of change in episodes three through nine, a guide to changing things. That was a year ago. Dang. But the trans-theoretical stages of change says that there are five stages, and the first three are the most important. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, and action. You need to properly see a problem, consider its depth, its nuance, understand the factors that make a potentially new behavior preferred, but, and this is important, the internal consideration must be accompanied by external action if anything is going to be different. Willpower is not enough. Speaking it is not enough. Making it top of mind will only take you so far. And if, if you don't accompany the thought or the contemplation with any external experiential process, it will not stay top of mind for very long. And, wh- and whatever was real about it in that moment that you spoke it into existence, and that, you know now it's just a relic of history. That's why action is the next and central step. There needs to be a well-informed plan. There also needs to be direct experiences to manifest a plan into reality. So, yes, the, the necessity of experience and tactile execution still has a lot to do with our heads, okay? Well, at, at least our brains. But now we are getting to the role of memory. I told you it was a bit of a detour. Because in order for something to move into long-term memory and therefore become a part of your lived experience, it requires certain things to unfold. And this is called encoding, the other option, you know, and you see this sometimes when organizational leaders talk about building culture or communicating a message, is to use linguistic saturation. Okay, so bringing something into your consciousness that there's this process of encoding, which is, you know, based on experience, not just rhetoric, not just information. All of that has to come together. L- linguistic saturation, on the other hand, is where, and you hear business leaders talk about this sometimes. You have to communicate the message thousands of times. You know, that's what it's going to take for your employees or your stakeholders or even your friends or your children to internalize it. And this is kind of the foundation of advertising. You know, a marketing company would probably prefer to be able to take every prospective consumer and provide a tactile experience to get them to buy the product. 
And, and, you know, the proportion of sales at like an expo event where it's in person and they're able to kind of create a pitch, but also show you how the thing works. It's way greater than any kind of media commercial. But most of advertising has to be communicated with messages in some form of media, you know, radio, television, newspaper, etc. So you can try to saturate that message as much as possible. You know, and if you can, you try to get the message to align with, you know, a particular experience so that the consumer correlates, you know, what they heard with what they're going to go and do. And this is why commercials are increasingly becoming more and more like cinema. And, and think about the commercials you see. A lot of them try to get you to associate the actions of the actor with yourself. You know, they use common experiences so that when you find yourself in some sort of situation, you'll consider their product because it's top of mind because you saw the ad and you related this experience. You know, the other option, though, is that they have a message-centric advertisement. And maybe this is through a catchy tune or a popular slogan, but they're just trying to get in front of you as much as possible. You know, they're trying to buy as much real estate in your head as possible. But consistent rhetoric isn't the ideal means for that. And, and this is why you don't remember, you know, at least easily remember what you hear in a podcast. Here we are. Seriously, like written information, visual information is always way better. But here we are using a, a podcast. Actually, an in-person conversation is best, but now we're getting off track. So you can overexpose your intended audience to the message which in, in terms of, you know, the content of this episode you're listening to, that's what's happening. And you can try to make the rhetoric full of practical associations and concrete, credible information. But the most necessary ingredient to forming long-term memory to encoding is generating experience. And, and as memory goes, the, the primary forms of doing this are by making emotional connections or attributing practical meaning to the information, physically executing the information and lived experience, that's that's really how encoding works. And uh, for anybody who kind of grew up in, in Christian culture, you know, you've seen this if you've been to church, especially like those large entertainment-driven churches. Preachers are taught to always include a practical application at the ends of their sermon. They're told to use lots of stories and illustrations and metaphors and, and to try to appeal to emotion as much as possible. Why? Well, this is Aristotle's means of persuasion, logos, ethos, pathos, because people aren't inclined to remember information without some encoding help. And all of those things are ways to help people encode by playing to his senses and experience. Now, of course, the best way to transfer information into long-term memory is still physical experience. Like think of think of something that impacted you the most. The bottom of that list is probably just a random bit of information that you had no connection to or didn't involve anything experiential. Right? You just read a statement or heard something with with nothing else impacting it. Then, you know, one step up from that is probably rhetoric that appealed to multiple senses. You know, you probably remember a message that was given through a story, you know, particularly an emotionally associative story, or that was given with, you know, different sensory actions to it or something. Then a click up there 
is probably rhetoric that had like direct immediate associations for your situation for your life. But the top of the list is probably experiences. You know, you did something, you saw something, you went through something. There was an instrumental process that led to understanding and not, not understanding that led to a process. The experience made you think about the world a particular way. That's what's going on here. If you want to learn to cook, you know, you can read food blogs or even food science books, but if you actually want to learn how to cook, it's going to involve actually cooking. That's the idea. Experience is a fundamental part of ideation and execution because it fosters direct engagement with memory. Embedding information into long-term memory requires experience. That's the short version. And this is what we mean by muscle memory. Muscle memory is literally the use of sensory experience to create associations and replication necessary for something to become normal. When you're trying to embed something into reality, you're trying to take sensory memory, okay, that's a thing, then you're trying to make it a part of your brain's short-term memory, and then you keep encoding it so it becomes long-term memory. This This is what people are talking about with a phrase like muscle memory. And if you think about this in terms of like the phenomenon of a New Year's dream, the reason that our good ideas don't lead to anything is because they become a part of our sensory memory in that moment. And sensory memory is infinite in capacity, but it it vanishes in no time. And as soon as the next moment begins, there's a chance that that's going to be gone unless you have encoded it. Everything you see, think, feel, smell, taste, hear, all of that is a part of your consciousness for at least a brief period of time. You know, you see a commercial or you hear words or read a message that occupies your brain, but only for a moment. You know, the advertisers need to get that into your short term memory. So they use experience as much as possible within the means of whatever communication is available. You know, or you, you write the thing down, you come up with a plan. At that point, you're moving something from sensory memory to short-term memory, but without experience, physical, tactile, sensory experience, your limited short-term memory will dissipate as soon as the next thing begins. Your good ideas will remain ideas as long as you never experientially encode them. And this is biological too. This process of encoding memory is in conjunction with a physiological process. Every time you do something, that myelin sheath, which, you know, coats your neurons, okay? Every time you do something, that grows stronger. And this coding is necessary because it kind of expedites the transfer of, of, of impulses in your neurological system. And that is what is happening when you build muscle memory. Your, your neurons are literally able to fire faster because the consistency of the action. Notice, however, this happens every time you do something, not think something. The performance of action enhances action. And so our first barrier to overcoming, you know, this problem of ideation to execution, it involves sensory experience and memory. We have to actually do the thing. You can talk about the idea all you want. But until you jump in the water, those seeds aren't going to grow.
So that's chapter one. The, the experience, the action, that is all incredibly essential in order for an idea to actually become executed. I mean, you have to execute it. But memory and how memory works helps us understand the best ways to execute it. Now we got to handle chapter two of this issue, which is overcoming resistance. This next barrier, it, it also helps us understand the process for however we're going to do that thing. So think about those desert monks, okay? They're sitting there in their monastery with this grand plan full of maps and itineraries and packing list. They've done the pre-contemplation and contemplation work. They've got the messaging. They, they've got the rhetoric. They've got the communication. That, that's all been completed. But in order for this to happen, in order for the process to become lived reality, there has to be physical, sensory, tactile experience and associations built in. There has to be action. Otherwise, their process is just, you know, taking them to short-term memory and then they're going to return to the familiar as soon as that moment's over. So we need to assume that you have intentionally endured the process of making the idea experiential. You know, you've you've thought about it, you've contemplated it, you've, you've seen how the benefits outweigh the current, but then you've also embedded it in your bones, part, partly through that process of considering it, but you've also started associating the idea with tangible actions, you know, what you're going to actually do and how you're going to do it. You've used all the practices of making this a part of your long-term memory, and now it's a part of you. But how do you make it normal? Okay, you've got the vision, you've, you've begun taking steps, but how do you keep this process from dissipating? Because there's also the chance that you started a new action, right? you jump into the new year, and, and you just start doing something because of this transitory time, but you haven't done the work to make sure that action will sustain over time. And, and this is our second barrier is the sustaining of the action. Technically in trans theoretical stages of change, this is called maintenance. It's like the person who goes to the gym on January 2nd, but one week later is paying for a gym membership that they're never going to use again. So I want to be clear about this. Writing down the resolution or idea is still an important step. Yes, pre-contemplation and contemplation mean nothing without any action, but action is also unsustainable without pre-contemplation and contemplation. That's the problem here. If you only consider the idea, it's never going to be embedded. However, if you only perform the action, then you don't have any cognitive vision that is going to be able to help you encode that action over time. You know, there are two issues with, with why we have good ideas but naive shortcomings. The myth of transformative information and the issue of memory, that's a means of confronting our failure to take the good ideas and encode them. You know, that's the monks at the monastery. But we have this other issue that we can try to make changes by just doing something and it also won't encode if it's not connected to a meaningful idea. You need both. You know, you're starting a habit without the intention necessary to make it a habit. This is why last episode, remember my spouse, Vanessa, talking about health and wellness. Well, she's saying, well, you, you have to have the mental development. You also have to have the, the habitual execution development. 
You need them both. And again, the circumstances of a new year make this highly likely. A lot of people jump into a new process or method during this time of year because, you know, circumstances are different. Maybe, maybe you have extra time or something. But our lives are in a new situation than what was normal for most of the year. And shortly into our adventure, our circumstances are going to return. And the landscape that nurtured that new action is going to be gone. And we're probably going to revert to what we knew unless we do both of these things. As soon as you lose the circumstances of the desired change, or soon as you lose motivation, the execution will stop and revert to the habits that are familiar to you. You need vision and action ideation, and execution. You need that internal willpower. And you need the external processes. And so the second barrier we have to overcome is how to properly engage with the action, which is actually about how to overcome our susceptibility of resisting change. So, resistance. We did a whole episode on this, episode six, A Guide to Changing Things, Change and Resistance. Quite clear title there. But I want to focus on a couple issues that particularly deal with our problem here, ideation and execution. And the first part of this is what happens when we've done all the things right. Okay, we've got both components down. We've got the plan. We started doing the action. We, we've incorporated experience, memory, encoding, uh, that's all begun and, and, you know, we've taken the first step of watering the seed. We should be good, right? You remember that myelin sheath? It's a tricky bit. When you sit down and write out an idea, whether they are New Year's resolutions or, you know, genius organizational changes or just healthy norms you hope for your life or your family or you, your community, those ideas are not just new ideas. The new ideas are in contrast to the ideas that you have been practicing up until this point. The weird thing about change is that you aren't just starting something. You are changing directions from a path you've been walking for a long time. You know, you're not just trying to stop smoking or lose weight or fix your marriage or innovate your business. You are trying to do so up and against whatever current pattern brought you to such a place that you want to be different. So when somebody talks about like a fresh start, there is no such thing because any attempted changes are in response to current norms. And you can try to get rid of as many of those current norms as possible, but nothing's new. When we're talking about change, we need to realize that our lives have not been, you know, a moniker of stagnancy and all of a sudden we're going to try and have a new thing. No, the new is only new because it is in reference to what is old. You've been changing the entire time, just in a way that you now consider to be unideal or unwanted. That myelin sheath, you know, it's not just waiting for you to start putting an idea into action and strengthen its coding. It's been building up a coding for years, and now you are asking it to not only build a new coding, but to build one that is completely contrary to what's been strengthening over time. And so if you found yourself struggling to make a change, start by being honest. 
that the very thing you are trying to overcome, it's already deeply embedded in your bones. It's got years of long-term memory encoding and experiential practice and muscle memory. You see, change is hard because it is in opposition to changes that you've decided, whether intentionally or unintentionally, thousands of times. Building a new habit requires overcoming old ones. Those monks, why did they stay at the monastery? Yeah, they, they made a vow. Yeah, the process of ideation to execution involved more than just talking about the, the idea. However, they would also be trying to function in contrast with what is known and familiar and expected if they left. And this is why pre-contemplation and contemplation are so important and why experience is, is so necessary and why action must happen in a very specific way because change involves resistance. We resist change because change disrupts our norms. Also, change is always a loss of the familiar. And any changes we try to make, they're always going to be hard and they're always going to happen slowly because the opposition we are up against. And so even when we are genuinely trying to move in a new direction, we are working against such forces that we might just end up staying where we are. Then this is biologically, existentially, sociologically, there is a lot of resistance to overcome. And you need a plan that can incite continued action over time. You know, there, there's a conversation on your brain that you as a human, you know, your brain has three tiers, kind of like three concentric circles of brain matter. And sometimes this is called the triune brain. And each circle outward is a more complex and it involves more kind of like sophisticated mental processing capability. You know, so for example, there's the prefrontal uh, and, and the neocortex. This has high-end functioning. It's only available available to certain mammals, but mostly humans. But you also have a thalamus and a medulla oblongata. And this is the fight-or-flight part of your brain. And it's shared with creatures like reptiles. And this reptilian part of your brain, when you get in situations of uncertainty like change, it's going to revert to desiring predictability and stability because it's trying to survive. Like change makes your brain think you are dying and our bodies will naturally resist that at all costs. So you got to be honest about what you're up against here. You know, if you try starting a new change without considering these factors, you're going to end up right back where you started and another New Year's resolution list will be left to decompose in eternal neglect. So what do we do? We've, we've got to move past ideation. And there needs to be practical, experiential actions that accompany our plan. But the action also has to be able to withstand the immense resistance that we are up against. It needs to be rooted in something that takes our proclivity for the familiar out of the equation. That's what we got to do. But we got to do proper encoding. And we have got to be honest that our willpower will lose if not properly aided. Ideation and execution requires plans and actions. So honestly, uh, here's what I would suggest. Here's how I I would propose we handle this complicated situation. First, 
yes, you have to start with a plan. And, and to go against a lot of what I've said, honestly, the first step is not even in the details. You actually just need to shift your perspective. You know, conveniently, New Year offers a great atmosphere to do this. And technically, this is the pre-contemplation and contemplation part of change. You need a vision. One where the benefits outweigh the comfort of your current circumstances. You need to make that internal decision of where you're going to go. You, you know, you need GPS coordinates. But very quickly, like right after you've done that, you have got to start setting up how you will externally condition that internal decision. How you're going to move this to long-term memory and how you're going to overcome resistance. And this involves considering your obstacles. You have to know the cards that your, your current identity is going to play and once you know that, now you can work with them because inevitably, inevitably they're going to come up. So you got to know what's going on there. You know, what are the current habits and norms and situations that are going to keep this new thing from happening? And how are you going to interact with them? The resistance is going to be there. You need to be prepared. And so this brings us to the second necessary component for how to actually do the action. You know, once you're rooted in a plan with experience and encoding, the next thing you need to do is take yourself out of the equation and begin building experiential actions to create a new norm. Your plan needs to be one where you kind of trick yourself so that you don't default to what you know. You have to avoid relying on your familiar state. And that's honestly, in all of this, if I had to say, what's the, what's the biggest reason why execution fails? It's because we don't properly handle the resistance. You know, either we think that our willpower is going to get us through it, or we don't have a plan that takes us out of the equation that's going to allow a new norm to come into fruition. I want to spend a couple minutes here on, on, on how we do it because there's a couple ways. And, and again, this is the practical stuff. The, the first way that you can do this is by what's called creating triggers. <clears throat> and this is where you set up your context so that, you know, you're in the heat of a moment. You're making this transition. You've got outside factors that are going to help make the decision for you. So, for example, you know, setting an alarm to remind you to do something. That's a trigger. That's something external that you set up that in, in the heat of a moment, you might not do that yourself, but you've created a plan and something's actually inspiring that. Or it could be like removing certain options from your purview. So you're not going to have certain foods in the house, for example, or you're going to change your travel routine to, to take you, you know, away from things that you associate with. You have to set up processes that trigger you to do the thing that you want to do. And you're essentially conditioning yourself until your myelin sheath is strong enough to walk on its own. You've got to take you out of the equation. You can also do this with rewards. So something that makes the change desirable outside of change itself. You know, you can invest in the change. 
that's another way to do this. You know, you do something up front, which can be as simple as putting money on the line so that if you don't do it or you fail to do it, you're going to lose. Another really powerful tool is social cohesion. You know, telling people to hold you accountable or publicly stating your goal, that now gives you kind of these outside eyes peering in at your progress. And this can be a powerful motivator. And so a new behavior gets aided by that. You're more likely to do it when you don't want to. And then um, there's a third part of all of this that kind of builds off of, off of that process. You have to actually build the myelin sheath and the long-term memory, and it has to be through physical, tactile experiences. And this is the third stage of the trans-theoretical stages of change. It's action. And the best way to do this, you know, once you've set your vision, you've got some processes planned, best way to do this is to start small. You have to build momentum by putting the actions in reach, but they also have to be actions, okay? So the example I use all the time is with flossing. Just start by flossing one tooth. It's quite ineffective, but it is also creating a norm where you are actually experiencing the new ideal, it's 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 not accomplishing your goal yet, but it's a goal that's manageable. Your myelin sheath has grown a little bit. You're encoding that more into long-term memory. It's becoming more normal. Or, you know, just go and sit in the gym for a few minutes. It's accessible, so you're more likely to do it. And you're creating a physical reality that's making the new terrain normal. What you are trying to do is live in a new world. So the ways you spend your time and the things you need to do need to reflect that vision and and they need to be accessible enough that you're likely to do them in the next step in the trans theoretical stages of change is maintenance. And this is what you're doing with your actions. Now, this is the big part of how execution of ideas becomes normal. You have to build a world that can maintain because it, is the new norm now and it will only become the new norm if all of your senses have begun associating this new thing with reality so as your world begins to look different you know you keep increasing the goals you know along with your success so some you 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 meet something and then you increase it you're you're flossing one tooth regularly you move up to two and you continue to do that and eventually the new process becomes the preferred and it even becomes natural. And now you've got that muscle memory. That, that's how we move ideation into execution. And, and I remember uh, one year I had a resolution to use my smartphone less. It's a good idea. Lots of people consider it. But I had to follow this process when I did. And I noticed that I often just sat and scrolled through my phone I was dependent on it and it kept me from being present with myself and my family in a healthy way. And so I wanted to change it. And that's that right there. That's pre-contemplation and contemplation. That's the vision. But I started by getting rid of my phone. If I just said, hey, I should use my smartphone less. And I never set anything up. It wouldn't work. If I also tried to just use my willpower to get through that, it wouldn't work. If I tried to just stop using it and never had a plan or vision behind it, it probably wouldn't work. And so what I did is I just got rid of the phone and I bought a flip phone because I knew my willpower was not enough. 
So I changed my external conditions and I took myself out of the equation. And I made it so that, you know, I preferred the new thing over the old habit. And the way I did this was when I naturally went from my phone, it was a flip phone now, so it was not nearly as enjoyable. And so then I just started kind of leaving my phone in neutral areas. And so that if I wanted it, I had to actually get up and, and grab it. And that wasn't as easily accessible. So eventually I just started leaving my phone in another room and I only went to it when I needed to call someone. And with a flip phone, didn't really text that much. T9 texting is a pain. And so I got in a habit of not using it as much. And there was complications. Like when I wanted to drive somewhere, I had to look up directions before I went. And and I had to write down information before I left somewhere because I wouldn't have my handy smartphone to provide it. Now, I have a smartphone again now, and I barely use it, but I had to take the process seriously. So whether you are trying to change habits or trying to catalyze a new direction for the future, the pitfalls of ideation or poor execution are obstacles, but they are obstacles that can be avoided. So as you enter this new year, may your changes be rooted in a glorious vision for a better life and a better world. But may they also be guided by experiential transformation, long-term memory encoding, and small actions capable of actually overcoming resistance. So here's the 2022. And here's to externally conditioning the internal decision. Thanks for joining me. You can find more of this stuff um, on earlier episodes of the podcast. Uh, there's the a guide to changing things. Um, I also have a lot of articles about change, about memory, um, about perspective, and that's all on my website, tylerkleberger.com. And of course, if you found this valuable, please consider supporting this work at ko-fi.com slash becoming. Thanks for joining me. And, and I look forward to talking with you all next time. And we might as well like generally explore how this whole memory thing works in the first place. We'll call it science of memory. No, we're going to call it the art of memory. See you then.